You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Two new art shows that open this week at Columbia College's Larson and Hardwick Galleries each explore intersections, one of memory and service and the other of transitions and thresholds. The first with a combination of terracotta and porcelain and the second with a blend of paint and collage. Later in the show, artists Norlene Nosri and Amy Meyer will be chatting with me about their work and their influences. But first, next Friday, a new production of the play, by the way, Meet Vera Stark opens at Talking Horse Productions. Written by Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Lynn Nottage, it opens in 1933 with the title character, a headstrong African-American maid, helping her employer, a white actress, rehearse her lines. But Vera is also an actress, and when circumstances collide and both women land roles in the same antebellum southern epic, the controversial legacy of Vera's role and who she was off-screen provide fodder for scholarly debate decades into the future. Here to tell us more about the play, its comedy, its sly satire, and the questions it raises are director Blake Willoughby, Talking Horse executive director and actor in the play, Shara Knight, and actor Meg Phillips-Crespi. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you. So this might be my favourite new play. There is so much cleverly packaged history, satire, thought-provoking content and complex characters. Plus, it dips in and out of three different eras and parodies all of them. Plus, for once, it is a play with multiple juicy roles for people of colour. Blake, is this play a rare beast? It is, but it isn't. I mean, it's you have to find those scripts, and they're all out there for people to find. It just takes that discovery. And Talking Horse did a really good job in finding this script and selecting it for this season. It seems like in Columbia, at least, plays with good roles for people of color are like buses. You wait ages, and then three come at once. So right now we have Vera Stark on at Talking Horse. We have The Wiz coming up at Mizzou and Dream Girls at Columbia Entertainment Company. Has this created any casting issues as everyone is rehearsing all at the same time? <laughs> Shara? <laughs> um, yes. Like, that's the, that's the straightforward, direct answer. Yes. I'm excited about the fact that this is all happening. I'm not so excited that it's all happening at the same time, but I'm definitely excited about this happening for people of color in Colombia. I know that we did have a few struggles trying to get our cast together because they're all amazing shows that are going on right now, but there are not as many of us that are aware of the shows that are going on, so they don't know to come out to audition and cast because, again, like you said, it's kind of like a a bus coming by and all of a sudden you know there's there's all these shows going on so there was a couple of challenges but we we found our way through it and we have a fantastic cast and I know that the other shows they all have fantastic cast and wonderful productions going on so I'm just excited to see you know this happening for us this fall. It's good to see so much connection between the Jefferson City acting community in Columbia that there's more and more crossover Columbia people acting in Jeff City and Jeff City actors coming up here, that this is a really great mid-Missouri vibe. And you have one of your actors, I think, is coming up from Jefferson City, is that right? Yes, my Crystal Day. She um, did most of her performing with Capital City Productions, and now she is making her debut here at Talking Horse, and we just love having her. Her spirit and her attitude is just... She's wonderful. It's a breath of fresh air. So as I said at the top of the show, the play opens in 1933 and we meet Vera Stark, who is helping her employer, Gloria Mitchell, learn lines for a play. May give us an overview of where the play goes from there. Oh my goodness. So the first act is kind of like a 1930s screwball comedy and we follow kind of what happens as Vera and Gloria are vying for roles in this movie. And then act two jumps forward to the 1970s when, well actually to the 1970s and to the early 2000s when some uh, academic scholars are having a symposium about the legacy of Vera Stark and they find this footage of Vera and Gloria on a talk show from 19, the 1970s. And so, so that's all going on. 
So Blake Act 2, as Meg said, sees us time travel kind of into the future compared to where the play starts. So tell us about the world of Vera Stark in 1973 and and then a little bit more about what is happening in 2003. So we have it set up where it's two sides of the stage. So in 1973, they're on the Brad Donovan show, which is kind of like a talk show, a nightly talk show. And so Vera Stark is coming on and it is very much into Vera's bringing up the issues that are happening in the 70s when it comes to the Black Power Movement and kind of highlighting her involvement there and also the ways that she has been controversial. And then in 2003, where we have on the other side of the stage, they are kind of analyzing and investigating this interview footage from the Brad Donovan show, but then also footage from the film, uh, The Bell of New Orleans, as well as a documentary about one of the other characters. It gets kind of complicated. We'll come back to scene two in a little while, but Shara, you play the title role. You are the headstrong Vera Stark. Tell us about Vera. Vera represents a lot of black actresses during the 1930s. She is someone who she head out to Hollywood and hopes to catch a big break and found herself being positioned in the you know the roles that were offered at the time the the subservient roles really and um, I think Lynn Nottish actually does a really good job of just showing that because not only Vera but also her roommates and friends they're all trying to catch their big break as well and it gives an opportunity for the audience to kind of have a taste of what actresses went through during that time and Vera basically comes to a point Um, with her is do I sacrifice and compromise my integrity to finally catch my big break or do I just not take the role at all and so that's the battle that she's dealing with um, in the first half of the play and then the second half of the play you see basically the result of that and the ripple effect of this one major big break that she got in the 30s and how that has affected her at that point in time in the 70s. And Meg, you are the white actress, Gloria Mitchell, otherwise known as America's Little Sweetie Pie. <laughs> she seems to have uh, more character flaws than assets. <laughs> Other than her accurate. great beauty. Her great beauty. So g- <laughs> give us the lowdown on Gloria. Uh, it's a very fun part to play because she's just outrageous. I think dramatically she's a fool to um, Vera. All of the opportunities that have not come Vera's way have come to Gloria. And Gloria, instead of realizing how lucky she is and being grateful, is just all about me, me, me. Vera, why aren't you helping me more? So it's a lot of fun to play. You can tell by how quick-witted Vera is. I mean, they're just fantastic lines for, for you, Shara. That she's a far superior actress than her employer, but it Wait, is... it is what are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> It is 1933, <laughs> and therefore there aren't as many opportunities. So it really, it, like you said, it really drives home that fact that as a black actor, you could have all the talent in the world, but nobody was writing rich roles for people of color at that time. How true is that today? <laughs> You're doing the hardening questions this morning, Diana. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I believe that there is still some truth to that. Obviously, you know, there is more opportunities right now to have those very strong, rich roles for African-American actors. Um, obviously, we have the show, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. So, um, but there is, I mean... I have to start talking about personal experience. (laughs) Um, Just specifically thinking about being in Columbia, Missouri, and, you know, the opportunities for me to play, you know, a very strong, rich role, like those opportunities are few and far in between. And as like we as black actors are just not cast because, you know, and it's not because the roles aren't out there, it's because people haven't taken the time to really research and find the roles and put them up and and, and give the opportunity to those um, black actors here in the Columbia community. So there's still, there is still some truth to that, unfortunately. Yes, that's that's where I'm going to end that okay. But but there are plenty of there are plenty of black playwrights writing great roles. It's just Absolutely. it's just whether theater companies are picking up those plays and producing them. Correct. 
which is why it's so great that you are the executive director it of is. a theatre company here it in Columbia. Is. So we can see that change. <laughs> now, Vera shares a house with two other black actresses. Lottie is described as a pretty, heavyset, brown-skinned woman. And Anna May is a very, very fair-skinned African-American woman. Shara, talk a little bit about Hollywood at that time and how the difference in the colour of your colour dictated what roles you could get. Oh, man, the hard-hitting questions this morning. Yeah, that's what the play's about. Oh, yes, yes, and I knew that was going to happen, and I came in prepared to talk about it. But as I was saying before, during uh, the 1930s and the golden age of Hollywood, as it were, the opportunities for black actors was few and far in between. Um, They usually were in some sort of subservient role as far as black actresses go, whether Maids, it be a maid or cook. You know, they're cleaning someone's house. They're tending to the lead role, the lead white actress in the film. So you, it was really kind of either you were playing those type of roles or you were born of a lighter pigment, so to say, where that you could pass as um, something other than being a black actress actress so you could pass as you know a Latina character or you know a, a white actress at that time and so the women did what they had to do either they they were either forced to play like these these mammy roles um, I mean because that's really what they were or they had to be perceived as something completely different in order to gain a substantive role at that point in time. If there is a classic line in the play, it's probably spoken by Lottie when Vera is telling her about this southern epic uh, mm-hmm. and why she is interested in it and what roles are available. And Lottie says, slaves with lines. Mm-hmm. She says, slaves, slaves with, with lines, lines honey. honey. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's one of those lines that makes you laugh out loud. And then you think, oh, hang on, should I have laughed at that? Because this is really mm-hmm. just a sad reality. Mm-hmm. And the play has a lot of moments like that. Are there any others that stand out for you of those kind of like, everyone's going to laugh and then they're going to go, oh, was that funny? There's definitely some behaviors of Gloria that were blocked to be very funny that are actually quite awful. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, anyway, I thought we might have a little preview of the play as we have both Gloria Mitchell and Vera Stark here with us today. This is from the beginning of Act One, Scene One. We are in a living room. Deco Stylish, Hollywood, 1933. On stage is Gloria Mitchell, 28. (laughs) 28, with a couple of years' experience. White starlet in a dressing gown lying across the couch nursing a healthy glass of gin. Vera Stark, 28. An African-American beauty wearing a maid's uniform tentatively enters. She pauses, then ventures to speak. Miss, Mr. Lafayette here to see her. Tell him I'm not here. I can't bear to face him. Not like this. Not now. Not after all that has happened. But he already know you're here. That rascal Cassiuston told him. Tell him to go. Tell him I'm sleeping. Tell him anything. I can't. No. No. I don't want to see him. He ain't want me to say, but he missing you something awful. Oh, won't you tell him to go already? Wait. Does he look well? He look real good, miss. Did he bring azaleas? You know he always do. And does he know? Did you tell him I'm dying? (laughs) I don't know what he know, but I do know that he here. Miss, that man out there love you, and and if you were to send him away now, it's going to be a real shame. You can't keep hiding from the world. Talk to him. Tell him how you feel. Tell him you love him. Because you and I both know there ain't no other man in your heart but him. How do you put up with me? Miss, what you want me to tell him? What you want me to tell him? What you want me to tell him? Oh, damn. What the hell am I supposed to tell him? Oh, give me the line already. Tell him. Wait. Tell him to remember me on that warm summer. Spring. Day we went boating on the bayou. I was wearing that blue Violet sweater. cardigan. Oh, God. How am I supposed to remember these lines? They just pour into my head like water. I reach for them and they're gone. It's impossible. I can't do it. These words, sweater, cardigan. Who gives a damn? The woman is dying. Why does she have to make so many speeches about it? Because that's what's written, honey. And as you know, the writer likes you to say what's written. That's how it works. Well, we'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the very beginning. So how hard was it to get into that accent, Shara? (laughs) 
unfortunately, it was real easy for me to slip into that, you know. <laughs> um, honestly, I, I've actually previously played a role where I had to have a bit of that accent. So it was, I don't want to say it was second nature, but it's something that I've had to do before in a previous role. So I just sort of conjured that back up and put it out there. But I mean, you're from Missouri. You're not from... Oh, oh no, I'm not from Missouri at all. I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Oh, even even further north. <laughs> <laughs> even further to go to get down to the mm-hmm. Bayou accent. Mm-hmm. Did you have any dialect coaching for it? No, no. Honestly, I, I spent a lot of time studying just like old films for the most part to get an idea of how that should feel and sound. And a lot of time in my room <laughs> with the lines. <laughs> so the playwright Lynn Nottage took her inspiration for the play from the 1933 movie Babyface starring Barbara Stanwyck and the black actress Teresa Harris. And Nottage mm. describes how she was transfixed by Harris's character Chico who held her own on screen as Stanwyck's friend and co-worker and in a rare instance had equal screen time with Stanwyck. But this was one of the last films that was pre-code which was something that I had never heard of. Blake, tell us a little more about the motion picture production code and how it affected Hollywood. Yeah, so the production code went into effect and it really changed the fact of what was allowed to be on screen, who could be on screen and how long and what was, it was kind of in this idea of decency and what was decent to be seen in Hollywood. But the list is kind of interesting. There were two halves to the list. There were the absolute do nots and there were the be careful with. And on the do not list was profanity fair enough, drug trafficking, white slavery, and sex between races. Whilst on the be careful list were things like rape, torture, hanging, cruelty to children and animals. So there were, you could not show a really a, an, an interaction between the races. That was on the absolute do not do this list. And that really changed probably how race was perceived in America. How different do you think the race issues would be today if we had seen on celluloid for that into that mid 20th century period black and white people being shown equally particularly women being shown equally how would that have changed where we are today right i mean it's something that nottage has talked about what a difference she thinks this would have made that if we hadn't seen people of color in these subservient roles, if we'd seen them have rich roles where they were having equal screen time and they were getting credited mm-hmm. at the end of movies, which a lot of the black actors and actresses weren't right. credited. They didn't roll in the credits. Yeah, yeah I do think, obviously, we are very um, affected by what we see on the screen. It, it both mirrors society, but also informs it. And yeah, it really would have made a difference. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that recently I'm in a class with Dr. Crespi, uh, David Crespi on Brown, Adrian Kennedy, and so she has her play, A Movie Star Has to Star in Black and White. And we talked about this idea of black women really not having that chance to see strong black female roles in Hollywood on the screen back in the day. And so that really affecting the way that black women identified and saw themselves in the American narrative. Shari, you're looking perplexed. You're really <laughs> no. thinking about this now. <laughs> But for code, how different Hollywood would have been. I'm sitting back thinking on my childhood right now on how mm-hmm. I saw things on film and in television and and then, you know, taking it generations back to like my mother and what she may have saw and how that would have been different had we had seen ourselves represented differently. Mm-hmm. We'll leave people to think about that. (laughs) So there's an added complexity to the play in that in the second act, there is comprised of a flashback to the original film made with Vera and Gloria called The Bell of New Orleans. And then you've also got this 1973 super cheesy chat show, which is hilarious, (laughs) both of which are being viewed in 2003 by some righteous academics. So did you, how have you chosen to portray those, those flashback scenes? Did you make a movie? Yes. Um, So right now what we have filmed is because there's also a documentary of Leroy Barksdale. And so we have that done. And then tomorrow we're going to be at the Maplewood House filming that portion of The Bell of New Orleans. This is such a great component. Tell me about making the film. (laughs) (laughs) It has been an interesting ride on finding a location. And people have been so great in helping us get into that space and finding people who can help us because I am the first one who will say I am not an editor or a producer. And I am 
staging bodies and getting out on the stage in real life. So I can get that done. <laughs> but it will be an interesting experience. I, I think it's nice that Lynn not added all this multimedia because it does allow us to transport into these various different locations and allows for a really juicy conversation for audiences after the show to really think about what happens because the show is very comedic in the first act and we still have that comedy in the second act but I think the second act really starts dissecting the microaggressions around racial tensions that you do see in the first act. Mm -hmm. Lynn writes about the, the filming, that it should be you know, filmed in the cinematic style of the period, faces should be expressive, movements sharp and theatrical, um, but really it's just after the silent movies, and so actors, actresses are still being very dramatic and seeking the light in certain ways, because they're used to not having a voice, and so right. <laughs> you're really acting in a whole period drama when you're doing the film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to ca channel Katherine Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> I really love the parody components in the second part. And it really reminds me of a Saturday Night Live sketch, the academics talking. And I, when I've been walking the dog, I've been thinking about, you know, who I would cast. And it's like, you've got Keenan Thompson as Brother Herb, obviously. <laughs> you've got Ego Wodum as Afwa. You've got Melissa Villasenor as Carmen. And wouldn't Kate McKinnon be just an awesome, aging Oh, she would Gloria. be. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. So I... So I <laughs> I'd love to see Saturday Night Live yes. do this parody sketch in the second act. I think it would work really well. There's just so much to love about this play. Tell me what you love the most about it, Meg. Well, for me, a lot of times I play sort of a, a milder character, a nicer character, and so personally it's nice to get out of my comfort, not out of my comfort zone, I guess, but just to be able to play something a little different and outrageous is very fun. Shara, what about for you? I think what I like most about this play is that it just really shows the actor's experience. I don't think we really spend a lot of time in most shows, you know, really learning about like the actor and the characters and the things that they have to go through in order to gain a role and, and get that moment where they're acclaim, if you will. So I, I just I really enjoy that component of the show. Blake, what attracted you to being the director of the show? I really want to have this opportunity to work with Talking Horse because seeing all the shows that they've produced and seeing all the work that they've been doing has been really good. But this show really draw to me because just the way, as I previously said, Nottage wraps this conversation of racial microaggressions during the 30s, the 70s and even in conversation of the early 2000s in a very comedic way so that's a very palpable way of taking it in so that we can have a very juicy conversation I think with audiences. The play leaves us with the question of whether actors like Vera were shackled to the stage and paraded like a chattel or was Vera doing what she loved with finite options? Last thought, Shara, what do you think? I think it's both, quite honestly. I, I really do believe that Vera was doing what she felt she had to do. In the end, she did end up having to compromise a bit of herself and her integrity to finally get you know, an opportunity to even be in film. But then because of that choice, she found herself very much bound to that role and having people view her in a specific way. But And she asked the question point blank, should she have not taken the role and cleaned somebody's house instead? What would that do for actresses today had she had not made that decision so I think it both questions I mean it's it's a little bit of both for sure thank you so much to my guests today Talking Horse Theatre's executive director and actor Roshara Knight director Blake Willoughby and actor Meg Phillips Crespi the show by the way Meet Vera Stark opens at Talking Horse Theatre next Friday October the 11th and runs for two weekends evening showtime is 7.30 plus there are two 2pm 2 matinees on Sunday the 13th and 20th tickets are $15 and you can buy them online at talkinghorseproductions.org or by giving them a call on 573-607-1740. Break a leg, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be joined by painter Amy Meyer and ceramic artist Norlene Nosri, both of whom have new art exhibits on display at Columbia College's galleries. Do not wander off. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. I confess, 
that I struggle with a lot of abstract or non-objective art. I'm never quite sure exactly what I'm supposed to be appreciating, whether I have some emotional deficiency for not feeling moved in some way or an intellectual inadequacy for not connecting with a work or maybe just an educational shortfall in not comprehending a work's place in the arc of art history. I have had many discussions with art world friends about my struggle with this genre of art and mostly with one of my guests today, Amy Meyer. Amy was my erstwhile education director at the Columbia Art League and was more recently and for many years the curator and director of administration at Sega Browdis Gallery as well as being a fine artist with an extensive oeuvre of work in the non-objective genre she's also an art educator and an art historian and full disclosure one of my best friends. Also joining us on the phone from St. Louis is ceramic artist and art educator Norlin Nosri, whose earthenware and porcelain tea services have been seen at Sega Browdis Gallery, City Hall, the Bingham Gallery, the Columbia Art League, as well as at many other galleries around the country. Unlike non-objective art, I am fully at home emotionally with tea services, having been brought up in the socially cohesive world of tea drinking. The English are more likely to say, I'll just pop the kettle on before can I take your coat. For the next two weeks, both Amy and Norlene's work will be on display at Columbia College's Larson and Hardwick Art Galleries. Amy's paintings in an exhibit called Transitions and Thresholds and Norlene's collection entitled Of Service, Colon Memories. Hello, Amy and Norlene. Hello. Hello. Hey, Norlene, we have you there. It's always always exciting (laughs) when technology works. (laughs) Yes. So, Norlene, it is lovely to see a collection of your work in Columbia again. I know it isn't that long since your last show at Sega Browdis Gallery, but this new collection feels quite different. It's much more solemn, more in touch with ancestral tea drinkers. Tell us more about Of Service Memories. Thank you. It's, um, it's, came from the same place, you know, so the idea of serving and the passion in my work. This is, it's like a memory, like my dedication to the people in my life that have passed away. And I took the opportunity when Bo asked whether I want to do a show there. I thought it's small enough and quaint enough that I would try something to dedicate to that moment because I felt like it has to come out of me. Uh, someone who makes thinking that, how do I make something that to commemorate that? So this is this is the, the body of work that came out. Three of the works in the show are called Remembrance and they obviously are for people who have already gone. Who have they been mm-hmm. created for? Can you tell us a little bit more about those? There were ones that are in the Steeler. <laughs> my father, first of all, he passed away during my second year in grad program. And I was very excited to show him what that means to me as a ceramics artist in terms of making teapots because he, we are a tea drinkers family and we do it adopt the tea time from the English English tea time, you know, we do a lot of tea. I felt like the sense of making clay, thinking with him and thinking about the conversations that we had and the storytelling we had around tea. And he is such a, a wonderful, he was such a wonderful man and a leader in our community. But a lot of stuff happened around tea drinking and so much so like to think about making something to remember that he already passed on, you know, passed away, but the memory is still strong and made me want to like make for him. He loved teapots and my mother too. And it's funny because uh, when I was little, he she would not let me touch this expensive teapot that she collects. Mm-hmm. And now I'm making teapots. And also my friends, I have a few friends who's in the art world that passed away in the last like four or five years that I felt like now I'm here, I'm able to make work. The problem I have is nothing, you know, I, I can overcome it. And it's to think about that as well. Like, you know, we so dedicated in our studio practice and knowing that my friends here, they have passions in, in art making and then they're no longer here. I feel like I'm almost continuing that memory, making it and any obstacles that I dealt with with clay, especially this remembrance. It's like it gave the clay, I used uh a wrong clay. <laughs> I felt like I used the wrong clay for those pieces that it torqued during drying and broke at different areas. And then I mended it. You know, I mend, amended all those areas. And, you know, I felt like all the, the knowledge I have it in ceramics was put used. And before I give up, like, I'll do everything I can before I, I say, okay, I move on. But it seems to want to survive. And and then uh, the goal line, it's a part of the referencing Kintsugi. This is uh, in Japanese, it means the art of damage. 
so I felt like I can still relate relate to like good and bad experience that we I had in my life is part of being alive. So and commemorate those mended cracked areas by putting gold luster gold leaf on it. It's, I thought it was appropriate to the the body work. So you should maybe describe a little bit your work. You work in two bodies of clay. You have earthenware, which is this kind of this very heavy, earthy component. And then you work in beautiful, white, delicate porcelain. And so the, mm-hmm. the sculptures that you have, they have this earthenware surrounding, whether it's a base or like we said, it's kind of a steel or almost like a kind of a gravestone component to it. Mm-hmm. And then there are little chambers, little holes within this earthenware structure where there are lodged mm-hmm. these beautiful, these super delicate little tiny porcelain teapots and sometimes little tea cups. And that that duality is yeah. so beautiful to see. Yeah. In the previous works that you've had in Colombia, you have an earthenware base in a kind of a red or brown tone. And then you have a teapot and you have lots and lots, tens or sometimes hundreds of cups that sit alongside <laughs> the teapot for this idea of the social cohesion of tea and of sharing tea. But in this new show, there are hardly any cups. It's teapots and the earthenware bases. Why no cups this time? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like it's not, it's almost like not necessary in the context of remembering. I felt like the idea of having a spout in that vessel gives people the idea of it drinking, you know, it's a serving vessel, so a teapot, someone will call it. And I, I omit handle on top of that too. Just the idea of drinking with the memory, you know, or you don't have to use it or it's just indicating, you know, it's just, it still na- gives that narrative that it's the memory of the, the people who passed away. It's almost not necessary, I felt like. But I did put a cup or a four, you know, in some of this composition, perhaps because it needed something in terms of composition, but I felt like it gives this quiet narrative of having tea with memory. So I, I'm trying to create that moment where you contemplate without thinking so much about function. It's so, so relate, you know, people always, always say, oh, it's the tea set. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's more, it's more than that because it's already embedded in our many, many cultures, what that means. So I'm, I'm using that as a platform uh, because the conversation that people have around tea set and drinking or while drinking, that to me is maybe because I'm longing for that. And even so people who already passed away, you're longing for that moment. There, there is a, a ceremony around the process of making and serving tea throughout Asia with each culture yeah. having its own set of traditions and rules. And I think if you haven't been to Asia and seen how tea drinking has a much greater idea of tradition and service, your work illustrates that to people here in this country. But talk a little bit about the tradition of tea service in Malaysia. How tea yeah. is served... Uh, like, can you serve yourself tea? Because like, in, in Hong Kong, you weren't supposed to pick up the teapots. You know, someone pours you yeah. the tea. Yeah, it's, it's like an etiquette. There's so many cultures have different etiquette of how it's served and how even it's prepared because you want the best of the best in, in Japanese culture. Which my work, it's like all those wonderful things that we decide to do in drinking tea, just tea, let's say that we, we do to create that moment. It's just to separate that moment when you come on the way to the tea drinking, you know, just separate that moment. Either if someone's going to serve it in the sense of hospitality or the tea house, you know, in the Japanese tea ceremony, you're already, like, preparing your mind for that a moment thing. Or just, like, being hospitable, you know, like, go to your house day and you'd be like, there me tea before I put my coat out. So it's just that. It's the same in my culture. It's just uh, like, oh, it's three o'clock in between lunch and dinner. <laughs> and let's quench our thirst and drink tea with the scone, you know. With some, uh, <laughs> That's so tea, English too, you know? isn't it? <laughs> um, and we, yeah, my mom's tea that's very English, you know. I can't touch it. I'm, she said I'm so heavy-handed. You know, or, or just some chere. Chere is like a, a kettle, you know. You just make the tea immediately and put it in the chere. And that sense of abundance you know like oh you're gonna be drinking a lot of tea and a lot of conversation and i think also that i'm away from my big family from malaysia that 
I now I, I miss that moment. I miss that point in every day, you know, that's the point I'm going to meet up with someone and have tea or there's like, it's almost like it's already on your schedule and you're, like, you're going to have that at three o'clock every day, you know. <laughs> And I keep that whole earthenware and porcelain. I want to speak in the level of material as well because there's two different clay bodies. There are two different clay bodies, and you don't see people looking at porcelain, not very much, so you see them looking in the same studio, you know, because one will contaminate the other and one will lower the temperature of the other, you know. Instead of thinking that way, I'm thinking like both have so much potential and what they can do with earthenware with those monumental forms, Colosseum or, you know, like, or architectural form, you can take that kind of shape. And porcelain makes this very delicate look, but it's tough and it just it allows me to, to work differently too, because this is the kind of form that porcelain can, uh, when, when you make those forms with porcelain, it just, it just looks so different than other clay. So having these two together, you know, as one, I felt like, I, like it's also like, I am in one way of making work, and then when I move on to the porcelain, it's like a, I have to refer to what I already did with the base, and then all of a sudden I'm on a completely different mindset when I work with porcelain. Nolene, let me move over to Amy for a minute. Amy, okay. your, your new body of work is firmly in the non-objective genre, and explain to me what the difference is between abstract art and non-objective art. Well, yeah, I can definitely do that. I want to take just a second and appreciate Norlene's um, experience because I didn't, I've known Norlene for a long time and I've worked with her for a long time in different capacities and I hadn't known that she had a connection to her father the same way I had. And Norlene, I express your uh, sympathies with that because I also had the passing of my father. Unlike yours, my father was an artist who discouraged me from the arts and it made an impact on me much like your father made an impact on you in a different way. So I, I think mm. that the history of our families really do play into the creative process just in different ways. So yeah, mm. with that said, Norlene, I, I express my sympathies to you and, and I don't know how long ago you said Thank he you. passed but you know my dad passed away in 2010 and that was a definitive mm. moment in my artistic career where i made some choices to do things differently than he did because he was a very realistic artist and i had been working in that vein also but once um, he passed i felt like i couldn't do it just emotionally not technically but i also chose mm. a different path and so i've been working non-objectively and abstractively um, since then. But to address your question, Diana, um, I was also an art educator, as you know, worked for you as an art educator at the Columbia Art League for about a few years, several years. I also taught in a private school here in town. So not a lot of art historians differentiate between non-objective art and abstract art. They tend to talk about abstract art in the general my perspective on that is that abstract art is something where the artist starts with something in mind, whether it's a landscape or whether it's a portrait. Think Picasso when he went into cubism. He had a, he had a person in front of him, but he didn't represent them realistically. He abstracted their face and their form, and he broke it down into planes, and that was an abstracted version of a portrait. Non-objective work, if you think about Kandinsky, Kandinsky was trying to interpret music into a visual format. So that's not a visual representation that any one of us would ever feel the same thing about. We listen to Kandinsky and we think of different things, all of us, but he worked in a way in which that he Oh, I'm sorry, we listened to Kandinsky, I'm sorry. We listened to different music, musicians, I said Kandinsky. Um, but you listen to them, and then Kandinsky would take it and, and work it into his different visual format, which was not necessarily something that we would all agree upon, but it was his way of interpreting the music. So that is more, to me, of a non-objective, because music other than the actual notes on a staff or, you know, if anyone is accustomed to reading music would, would have a visual representation. If you don't have a visual representation, it's more of an emotional thing. And Kandinsky took that emotional response to the music and he put it into a visual language, but it was just his visual language. It doesn't mean it was the visual language. So when I think about the difference between abstract and non-objective, abstract to me is you start, the artist starts with something in mind, whether it's a portrait or whether 
it's a still life, it's a landscape, and they, ab- they abstract it into something that might be recognizable, but most likely is not. And the, the non-objective artist works from just more like a feeling. It's more intuitive. It's more like about the way the colors play together, the way the shapes play together, the way the planes come together. Um, it could be color. It could be form. It could be sculptural. It could be painting. It could be drawing. It could be many things. But non-objective really is coming more from within the artist rather from outside the artist and working outward. I don't know if I'm completely accurate on that, but that's the way I interpret it. So that's how I identify my work as non-objective. So despite my knee-jerk <clears throat> flinching to most non-objective <laughs> art, I have to say that I do actually really like your Oh, do you saying that collection. just because we're friends? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, but no. no, I do like it. So, you know, good job. Good that's job okay. winning me over. Okay, thank you. So the, the collection is called Transitions and Thresholds, and mm-hmm. it is full of color, which is maybe mm-hmm. why I respond to it. You've got hot pinks and turquoise and bright yellows and salmon and eggplant. So talk about the process of choosing colors and layering them together. Well, it's really funny because anyone who knows me outside of my studio and outside of my home, I dress like monochromatically. <laughs> I'm like I'm like the animals of an artist's uh, wardrobe. I have like gray, tan, black, white. I don't but I love color and I don't think most people know that about me unless they see my art. So, Joseph Albers is a huge influence because he really talked about not just color but the relationship to color against each other. And that's one of the things where I really Uh, play with which is you know you've got one color and I love it I I choose colors because I love them and then I choose another color because when I put it next to it I love it even more and I work with those two colors and I work with multiple colors including big swashes of black and big swashes of white because I feel like they neutralize things as as I work and I really enjoy that process but yeah my work is really driven process but the end result is actually kind of this moment where you say okay that works stop and you go past that I mean sometimes you do that sometimes you go past it and you go oh, okay I went past that I should have gone back but with paint you can actually you know go back you can you can repaint you can correct and you can change things and uh, but I, I really, really am driven by the process. So let, let's talk about process for a minute. When you look at an empty canvas, mm-hmm. Amy, do you know where where it's going? Have you got any idea of the end result you want, but you don't know how to get there? Or it's really just I don't even know what journey I'm going on. It's a little bit of both. When I used to work in realism, you know, I was like, oh, I want to paint this still life or this object or whatever. Of course, you know where you're heading. And I love that part, too. I do. I still love that. But when you're working in non-objective work, there's kind of this freedom to say the first layer doesn't really matter as much. You can just kind of attack it and you kind of go at it and you do things. And sometimes the first layer is really magical and you're like, oh, okay, I know where I'm going. Sometimes it's like, oh, that didn't work. But with canvas or board or whatever you're painting on, you can build layers and the layers actually add to the history of the painting, which is something I love about Diebenkorn's painting. He's one of the painters that I really admire. If you look at his work, you can actually see the transparency of his process. And I don't want to call it necessarily a struggle, but it's definitely not planned. If you listen to his interviews, it's not planned. He's like, oh, I did this. Well, that didn't quite work. I do this. And, and you add, and then all of a sudden, there's this depth and this, this composition that really works. And you just kind of have to know intuitively when to land and when to stop, which is hard. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't always work, but it, it, you try for that. Norlene, when you when you start working on a new piece, have you meticulously planned it out before you start, or does your process allow for happy accidents? I'm the same with Amy. <laughs> I, I I do appreciate those happy happy accidents, and all those pieces was just like an idea. I know it's going to be on the wall but I, I go with proportion I, I will try to sense the proportions uh, uh, of the work how I feel when I'm in front of it you know but yeah I, it's kind of and then I, I then I discover like oh these pieces are too big for the kiln and then I have to cut it and then I have to rearrange the design <laughs> so it's it's pretty much I enjoy actually I enjoy the challenge of deciding on where to cut where the curve's going to be you know 
Because it seems like putting an extra layer of paint down is not a, a huge difference in cost. But if you've got, if you're buying clay and you've got a huge slab of clay, I mean, you don't really want to make too many, go down sure. too many false avenues. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> editing is much more difficult for the clay artist. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, I, yeah, editing is like, I'm always looking for form. It's just never, never done, you know, and I'll, like, I've, this, this, the wall pieces are my new, new pieces. They were not even, they weren't on the wall. They were always flat on the table. So it was just so difficult to like, uh, you know, then I found a tall letter and climb out the letter just to look down how it looked on the wall. <laughs> it is, it's a finding form. I call it finding, trying to find that form. You know, and I, it's like a Lego, but Lego that stick to each other, you know? Well, hey, no, Norlene, I think your wall pieces are very successful. I mean, I've worked with you for a while with your work, and I've not seen a wall piece in a while, but I think they're very Thank beautiful. You. Yeah, I love the wall piece. Thank there you. is one piece that Amy and I were looking at when we were looking at the show the other day, and it's one of the wall pieces. I think maybe it's called a service. It's a small piece, and you have, you know, all the teapots in the collection are completely white. But in this one work, there's a little tiny black semicircle that Amy noticed on the mm. bottom or corner of one of the teapots. Both. On both teapots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Why, why is that on only one work? When I put them together on the wall and I was like something is missing so I took a graphite <laughs> and I started scratching at the end of it and I said to Bo uh, the gallery director don't don't touch that it's graphite it's not glaze it oh. just needed to be there that's that's awesome <laughs> because I, yeah no that's awesome because I feel like that's where I find the most satisfaction in my work is on those edges where they meet you know these these moments where they're really really slim and they're slight but if the observer is yeah. is very careful about observing what they're seeing they're going to see that transition between yeah. like you know your work in the in the very slick porcelain to the to the terracotta and my work there'd be like three or four colors before it reaches another realm so i i appreciate yeah. that i think that's really awesome i amy. really enjoy your work too amy Thank you. Amy, love loves, Amy loves edges. I love edges. I do. I love transitions. <laughs> yeah, That's the, I name of the, the name of the show. Right. And thresholds. And thresholds. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much, Norlene, for being there today. And I look Thank forward you. to seeing you in Columbia again soon. My guests today have been artists Amy Meyer and Norlene Nosri. Their two art shows, Transitions and Thresholds and Of Service Memories, are on display through October the 17th in the Sydney Larson and Greg Hardwick Galleries in Columbia College's Brown Hall, which is open daily from 9 till 5. The opening reception for Transitions and Thresholds is this afternoon at 4.30, where you can chat to Amy about her work. And Norlene will be in Columbia at 3 p.m. on October the 17th to talk about her work at the closing reception for her show. Thank you so much, Amy and Norlene. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. It's the first Friday in October, which means it's first Friday in the North Village Arts District from 6 till 9 p.m. As always, there is a ton going on with live music at Fretboard Coffee and Outlandish Gallery, plus new art shows to see. At the Columbia College Galleries, as we just mentioned, First Fridays gets underway early with an opening reception at 4.30 this afternoon for the two new art shows featuring work by painter Amy Meyer and ceramic artist Norlene Nosri. At Sega Browdis Gallery, the October show features five artists, including Columbia artists Hannah Reeves, Joy Wilson and sculptor Devin McDonald. Wall Street Studios is once again hosting photo Vision, a juried, open-themed photography exhibit featuring work by both professional and non-professional photographers. The winners of this year's exhibit will be announced during the opening reception tonight. And at Talking Horse Theatre, the Ponies Improv Troupe are back with their family-friendly short-form improv with three blocks of comedy starting at 6, 7 and 8pm. The performances are on a stay-as-long-as-you-want, pay-what-you-can basis with a suggested donation of $5 per comedy block. The annual Columbia Experimental Music Festival hosted by Dismal Niche returns to various venues this weekend. Tonight, Juliana Barwick performs with violinist Alex Cunningham at the Firestone Bars Chapel on the Stevens College campus. The festival continues with a dance party at Cafe Berlin starting at 10pm and you can get a weekend pass for $50 or evening tickets each day are $15. On stage, the Stevens College Warehouse Theatre Company opens the Amish Project tonight at 730 with additional shows tomorrow 
tomorrow at 7.30 and Sunday at 2. And tickets are $8. In Fulton, the gender-flipping comedy Men on Boats is on at William Woods University's Delaney Auditorium, a truish history of an 1869 expedition when a one-armed captain and a crew of insane yet loyal volunteers set out to chart the course of the Colorado River. Evening shows are tonight and tomorrow at 7.30, plus it's a 2 p.m. Saturday matinee tomorrow, and tickets are $11. And at Rose Music Hall tonight, Aaron Cam and the One Drops are on stage at 9.30, and $8 gets you in. Tomorrow is Slow Art Saturday at Sega Browdis Gallery, this month with a talk by exhibiting artists Joy Wilson and Hannah Reeves. Their talk will start at 11.30, and that's free to attend. Tomorrow is also National Museum Day, which is being celebrated at the University of Missouri's Museum of Art and Archaeology from 1 till 3 p.m. The Columbia Centre for Urban Agriculture has its 10th annual Harvest Hootenanny tomorrow with a 3 till 8 p.m. Which is sorry, which is from 3 till 8 p.m. at their urban farm on Smith Street. Tickets are $10 or $25 if you want access to the beer garden. At the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock, magician Mike Super, a finalist of America's Got Talent, is on stage for one night only tomorrow. His show starts at 7.30 and tickets are 47.50. And the Columbia Experimental Music Festival continues with two events at KOPN tomorrow at 12 and 6pm, followed by headline act Madhu Mokhtar, the contemporary Saharan guitarist from Niger, with special guest Yasmin Williams, and that's at Cafe Berlin starting at 8.30. Sunday at Rose Park, there is a kids' dance dance party with DJ Requiem, a bouncy castle, face painting, plus a Bloody Mary bar and snacks for mum and dad. The party is from 10.30am till 2pm and tickets are $5 per family. At Daniel Boone Regional Library, acoustic fingerstyle guitarist Yasmin Williams plays a concert at 2pm as part of the Columbia Experimental Music Festival. The We Always Swing Jazz Series presents Karen Allison at Murray's with two shows on Sunday at 3.30 and 7. And at the Whitmore Recital Hall, there is a free concert by the Mizzou New Music Ensemble at 7.30 on Sunday evening. Ragtag's Cinema's annual Passport Series, celebrating new international cinema from around the world, kicks off next Wednesday with the French-Canadian film called Genesis. The film will show next Wednesday and Thursday at 6.30pm. Next Thursday is opening night in Jefferson City for Capital City Productions musical comedy The Addams Family. The show runs for three weekends and some dates are already sold out, including opening night. Dinner theatre tickets are $38, so if you want to see that, Go onto the website pretty soon. And finally, famed Missouri painter Billy o. O'Donnell will give a talk about his painting Missouri book at the Rocheport Community Hall from 7 till 9.30 next Thursday evening. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.